Matt Frad. Delfino, Delfino, Delfino. Matt Frad. All right. Hey, I got to sneeze again. I don't know what's going on. Uh, you, you have the sneezies. <laughs> Do I sound sick? Uh, no, you don't sound sick. Okay. Yes, he does. <laughs> Uh, I just did the worst thing a person should do when they're about to do a thing with their voice and record it. What's that? Eat peanut butter. Oh, no. Homeboy was really hungry and didn't have a lot of options, all right? <laughs> homeboy homeboy was hungry. <laughs> oh, man, that is funny. Hey, Luke, um, so I love you a lot. You know that, right? Mm-hmm. And I was thinking. I was thinking. I got, I got a couple topics that I wanted to hit, hit hit off the bat with you. All right, let's do it. Okay. Okay. Now, uh, just so everyone knows, Luke and I uh, tried to record last night, and we did our Patreon bonus episode earlier. We tried to record again last night, and I was in a super huge funk. Super huge. And I, we just couldn't hit it. We were doing some good stuff. I actually have been listening to it. We're doing some good stuff. I think I just need to go back and tighten up some of it, and it'll be fine. Maybe I'll just release that whole thing. We did a critique on film, the danger and the greatness of film. Um, but uh, it, it was kind of falling short for us. And so yeah, me and Luke were like, all right, let's wake up. Let's give ourselves a little bit more sleepy time, and uh, let's kind of hit this again in the morning because I'm going to be out of town Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So – my hope is my hope is that this is we're just going to be so amazing right now we knock it out of the ballpark. What do you think? Oh yeah, I've got a Lacroix with me, so you know we're good. Luke, I have a Lacroix as well. What are you drinking? Uh, I have. Oh, we are so pathetic. Uh, I um, <laughs> have the natural orange flavored sparkling water. I got berry. I, I got the pink one. Nice. What's happened to us? Well, I'll tell you what's happened to us. That's full hipster. LaCroix is a hipster drink, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I would say so. I mean, it's getting, it's, yeah. it's kind of got that. Like, odds are if uh, you have one, you have either hardwood floors, exposed brick, or exposed pipe. It's somewhere in <laughs> your life. <laughs> I have none of those things. Mm. Well, you know, not, not, any, right now. Hmm? <laughs> not anymore. I mean, for those people... The hipster thing is, right? Like, it's so hipster. I loved it before it became cool, you know? Mm, yeah, uh, yeah, it's true. Uh, are you- hey, what's a, what, what's a hipster's favorite? Uh, oh, what is the line? Ah, oh, damn it. There's a joke. It's like, what's a hipster's favorite number? And you're like, I don't know what. And he's like, you've probably never heard of it. <laughs> <laughs> are, how pumped are you that, like, dad-style stuff is now in style? Like, dad clothes. <laughs> I'm a little weary of that. I'm a little weary because I've been dressing like an old man since Nam, and to find that I'm suddenly fashionable, it uh, it appalls me. Hmm. Yeah. It appalls me. So I'm gonna so I'm gonna start dressing like a twelve year old. It's the only way. It's fair. Or 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 are all the twelve year olds gonna start dressing like you? <laughs> Age compression. I want to be thirty five years old and slightly balding. Slightly. <laughs> Damn it. Okay. <laughs> ah. Good luck. Yeah. Good luck. <laughs> the times they are a change indeed, Mr. Dillon. <laughs> oh, love it. Love it. How, so how, um, oh, sorry. No, sorry. You've no. got you've got topics. Me, you, you, me, me, you. you, you him, 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 him. Uh I wanted to I, there are two things that I wanted to bring up. Okay. Two things. And you could tell me what you think, what you don't think, what you like, what you don't like. Um thing number one is I want to talk about 
and, and this can sound boring, but you, me and you, we're interesting people, and we read interesting things. What are you reading right now? That's number one. Ooh. Number two is I thought it would be interesting if you and I took some time and told our story of why we're Catholic, like why Jesus in our lives today. Mm. Mm. Like not necessarily giving a testimony, but kind of giving a testimony, but not exactly that because we're talking. You know what I mean? Yeah, Like, sure. why now? Why him? Why Why this? Why church? Why all that stuff? Cool. All right. Let's do it. Those are my topics. Those are my topics. Let's do so, it. Luke, what are you reading? I am currently... Audible Counts. I am reading Truman by... Oh, my God. I'm blank on his last name. The guy who wrote John Adams. He's a big... All the historians hate him, but all the people, they, they really enjoy him. Historians hate him yeah. because people actually read his books. Um, and his wife does his research. There's a scene, yeah. Uh, David McCullough or, or, or whatever, it's it's like a thousand yeah. page book. It's it is phenomenal. It is it's I believe he won the Pulitzer Prize for it back in the nineties. It's very very. I I've not. It's been a long time. Oh, I've I've got his Adams book right here, David McCullough. So, uh, I'm a big big fan of of his McCullough McCullough. <laughs> So, yeah, like, did you know just how crazy ass violent the whole driving the Mormons out of, like, out of Amazora was? I had no idea. Very, I'm talking it was basically genocide is what they were trying to do. So it was, it was basically they were like, these people's religion is so weird that if they happen to die while we're driving them out, no bigs. Well, it was partially that, but the big, he thinks the big two things were the fact that they were very anti-slavery. And that as their populate, as more and more people came to Amazara, because that was their Eden, if you will, or this or their um, Jerusalem, yeah. uh, they started to have like they became about a third of the population, which means they had a really big voice in politics there. And so then they're like, "Nope, we're gonna kill, we're gonna kill you guys now." And uh, it was they drove them all out. It was very violent and very horrific. <laughs> we're gonna kill. Well, oh shoot, what time? Yep, we're gonna have to kill you guys now. That's like what I mean, if you look at the history of the um, of the 19th century here in America, it's filled with stories of, oh, this big ethnic group is here now. Let's just drive them out. Like it happened back in like Eureka in the 1800s with the Chinese. They killed a bunch and they just drove them all out of, um, of the city. Uh, yep. We're not too so far removed from all that stuff. It's. Kind of I know, it is crazy. That. It is crazy. I mean, first we did it to the Native Americans. <laughs> like, I mean, it's like one thing after the other after the other. Like, this is a constant thing that we that we tend to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yep. And it's um, it's very interesting because we're the only. How do I put this without sounding terrible to our Protestant brothers and sisters? Um. There's you this, can't. There's this <laughs> Protestant aspect to it that's very interesting that you don't have within the church because within the church, I mean, you, I'm not saying that the church has not done bad things. The people in the name of the church have not done bad things, but there's this whole element to it of it's you know you, you have the whole like, manifest destiny part that this is what God yeah. wants, but there's no sense of conversion. Mm-hmm. And it, it's it, it's tied into this whole like you know the um, thing of the time of like the glory of man. And then you tie this yeah. with this really weird, like weird branch of of Protest of Protestantism, where you're not really supposed to convert everyone; you're just supposed to take over everything. 
it's like your right, your God-given right to have America. And you're going to drive out anyone who is un-American because it's what God wants. Yeah. And it's just, and so it's, it's kind of a, I mean, because again, if, if you look at the, at the, at the Catholic version, if you will, of that, it's more about, um, you, you don't drive people out as much as you're just there to proclaim the gospel. And then the gospel becomes a part of their culture. Anyways, it's a very, very good book. And I'm very, um, I'm very excited to be reading a history book again. So. Man, that it is interesting, and we brought up when we were talking about film yesterday, the notion of um, not just manifest destiny here at home, but also taking the American democracy abroad was very much a a part of progressive politics in the nineteen twenties and mm-hmm. teens, twenties and thirties, yep. and we and we did it through military, we did it through influence, we did it through all these different things, and uh, it was this this notion. God, was it Harding? Who was it? The guy that was. Essentially, this messian—he saw himself as a messianic figure. And to me, the the point, the movie that really drove that home was where Matt Damon was talking about the beginning of the CIA, and he was uh, Yale and Skull and Bones and blah blah blah. And he's talking with Joe Pesci, and Joe Pesci says he's looking at him as a mobster. He's looking at uh, at Matt Damon's character, and he says, "What what what is it with you people?" And he's like, "What do you mean?" He's like, "What do you have? What's your thing?" He's like, "Let me ask you something." We Italians, we got our families and we got the church. The Irish, they have the homeland. The Jews, their tradition. Even the news, they got their music. What about you people, Mr. Carlson? What do you have? The United States of America. The rest of you are just visiting. And you have this, I mean, going straight back to a city set on a hill, Calvinist Puritanism, you have this notion of America as the exceptional country, which is American exceptionalism is pure cancer. But uh, this, we keep thinking like we're allowed to do this because we have a mission. You know, we're going to bring Christ. We have even we've taken that whole um, what do you call it? The British Empire's um, white man's burden onto ourselves in weird ways because we don't do it like the British, which is we're going to subjugate everyone. We do it. <laughs> we're going to sub- subjugate everyone and 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 make you conform to our standards. You know, India and like all this stuff the British did. It's like we're going to liberate you and make you conform to our standards. It's this crazy narrative we tell ourselves well, to you know, make. The, yeah, I um I apologize. I, I did not mean to cut, to cut you off at the end. I just got no, you're very good, you're good. excited. I just um I just read this great article in the Economist about how China isn't. They're basically not what everyone thought was going to, to happen isn't happening. Like the communist party there is just getting stronger. At, at least that's the argument that the, that the person in the article was making. So the guy who is the president just just got rid of presidential term limits. So he was going. He's going to be. He's going to be the president for life. I think it's like Xi Jinping is his name, or or or, or it's like something like that. And. Um, and so out, so like what people thought was was going to happen, this is kind of what Bill was, is one of the things that Bill Clinton banked on was the more we open up the like markets there, the more the people there are going to want to like be free. They're going to see how good capitalism is and they're going to want more of that. They're going to want more. And like, it's been the exact opposite. The party has just gotten stronger and stronger and they're just continuing to, to, to control the markets in more dynamic ways and when i spent time oh sorry 
No, no, I was saying I think that kind of points to this, this, this idea of like, see, they're going to see how good this is, all this, you know, quote unquote liberty, and they're going to just like jump on it and just abandon everything. That's not what's happened. Yeah. When I was in China, um, uh, I met, I spent some time with an entrepreneur, multiple business owner, um, a native of mainland China, lived in Taiwan for years, you know, the conflict between China and Taiwan. Um, and he lived, he was living in Shanghai at the time. And he was kind of managing various businesses. And he said to me, he said, you know what's really interesting? When the whole Tiananmen Square thing happened, which, you know, you're not allowed to talk about in China. um, But you can in Taiwan. He said, when that whole thing went down, the Communist Party was going to lose. Like, there was a massive amount of forward momentum to be done with the Communist State Party. And he said, and the crazy thing happened. They gave us money and we shut up. And his whole belief, his whole belief was the Communist Party began opening markets to the West, began opening markets within China and, you know, to become an economic powerhouse in that that part of um, the world was to get people to focus on making money and not on making change politically. And he said, and look, look at me. I left Taiwan to come here to make money. He's like, it's so hard when you can provide for your family and do all this stuff versus getting killed. And so he just said, <laughs> no, it's just, it's just crazy. Like, and so that was, that was his, as a native Chinese person who went to Taiwan for years and years, who married a woman who was born in Taiwan, who lived in the United States for college and some time after that. And then they lived in San Francisco and then they moved back to mainland China. That was his view. Like, they they gave us money so that we would stop protesting. Wow, yeah, yeah. it's uh, ideas have consequences, and we're idiots if we think that the things that our um, you know great 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 grandparents did here don't impact us. And at the same yeah. time, it doesn't mean the things are always going to turn out. So, like th- that means we have to make sure that we don't fall into that trap of it's going to turn out the way that we think it is because it's our destiny. Yeah. Like we all have yeah, this weird sick. optimism that like everything is going to work out. It's it's like, it's like why would it not? Yeah, you know, it's just it's, it's ingrained in our and our and there's a, like a really good thing to that. But you also have to be be aware that like sometimes that's just not the reality of what's going on. I don't know. It's I just think it's fascinating that whole sort of um, like the whole American psychosis or whatever if you will i don't know if that's the right term or not but like just how we view of the world and how it's ingrained in our brain and how it's passed on and how it's just we just think it's this is just how the world is right because it's worked out so well for all of us here well all of us being the white men anyways (laughs) oh man that's rough so truman by david mccullough yeah very very good sorry (laughs) well that was the 20 minutes on one book yeah, no, I mean, I think that's awesome. Like, it, it is interesting how we all, because we're ignorant of history, we are totally doomed to repeat it, but how we um, we think history started yesterday or started with this one event or, you know, that one of the things why I got into, we kind of reference it every so often, the whole antiwar.com stuff was because people acted like 9-11 was the beginning of world history. And it's like, look what they did to us. And it's like, okay, what they did was uh, uh, an atrocity 
unlike I mean, like it, it, it's insane. I mean, three thousand plus people utterly have who have nothing to do with anything just wiped off the face of the earth and in an act of horrific terrorism. And then you start to go back and you remember, wait a second, this is the second time the towers were targeted. What about where what's his name targeted? What about you know the guy in the in the garage detonating that that homemade bomb? And what about this and what about that? And then you realize that history this has been a background thing going back and forth that the CIA actually have a name for it. And it's called blowback. And blowback is when the United States civilian population pays the price through death and money and all this stuff for covert actions that the CIA does abroad. Like, it's literally called blowback. That's the internal term of the CIA. And, in fact, one of the leading CIA guys, he wrote a book called Blowback, and it was the whole point of, like, hey, you know, we've been killing these people for a long time, and we haven't been telling the American people. And if we have, it's always like, yeah, well, we took out a really, really bad guy, but we also took out, like, his family and everyone else gathered at his daughter's wedding. And now, as it turns out, all the people at his daughter's wedding who have relatives, now they're radicalized and they want to kill us. You know what I mean? So there is this notion of if we don't know history and kind of what's going on in the background, which is why the news is the worst place to find this stuff out, because all it is is people talking, screaming at each other on different sides of the opinion for two minutes before the next commercial break. Um, If we don't have this analysis and reading these books and doing this stuff, we're just going to keep doing the same thing over and over again. Man, it is is amazing how, like, World War I and World War II – almost like the same war with a brief pause in the middle, you know? Mm-hmm. The people don't think about World War One when they think about World War Two, And so, unless you study history for five seconds. Um, <laughs> I know, that's, that's the part that drives me crazy. It's like, it's very, yeah. uh, I mean, and if even if you look at the, at, the, at the First World War, there are events in the 1800s that are clearly building up to that. Yeah. I mean, it, France punitively destroyed Germany in the Treaty of Versailles because they've been going back and forth for a hundred years prior over Alsace-Lorraine and, and all of this stuff. And they're like, we are done with these Germans. And then it so crippled them that they Germans yearned for any sort of pride. And it came in the form of a swastika and a guy with a tiny little mustache. Yeah. Uh, but I, I, one thing that really kind of worries me is that I feel like we're due for a war. If you look at historically it's it, we're getting kind of close to that i mean like we've obviously like we've had wars i just mean like a massive scale um i don't know but that could be how like that could also be how history has changed now so you don't really have those massive wars because people are aware of what the consequences of that are so now it's just more insurgent based yeah can we can we talk about american perspectivism and ignorance <laughs> because right now we have the world's largest the history's largest displacement of human persons because of a war but it doesn't affect us right i mean yeah. the whole the whole middle east especially yeah, the, the lands of syria and all this stuff yeah. i mean it's lighting up and uh yeah the humanitarian crisis is insane well, and, and, then and I, I met a guy i met a guy that was uh, a listener to our podcast um back in the early days and he works on the ground with Catholic um, organizations and non-Catholic organizations to work directly with these refugees. And I, I got his information so that we could talk to him one day. Um, I got to find that. But he, he had the most fascinating stories. And he was like, Mike, y- you can come. And you can come and walk this with me. And you will, you will it's like prison ministry, you'll never be the same. Like you see these people and everything will change and how you view politics and interventionism and like all this stuff. And it just, and I know, you know, like, Oh, 
everything that Audrey Assad tweets about Syria is true. Yeah. Anywho, that's what yeah. I'm reading, or that's what you're reading. So. <laughs> there you go. Happy Tuesday yeah. morning, everyone. Well, I got some good stuff. I got some good stuff. You, I go. got, I, uh, you ready for a, a, pep, a pick me up? Mm-hmm. <laughs> the motto of this book is uh, the Buddhist philosophy: all life is suffering. <laughs> <laughs> here's to put some pep in your. Here's to put some pep in your step. Um, I just finished uh, the Audible book read by the author of Twelve Rules for Life: An Antidote to Chaos by Jordan B. Peterson. Nice. I bought and that for Aaron for Valentine's Day. It was very, 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 very fascinating. I liked tons and tons of what he had to say. Me and Luke have talked about in the past a book that meant a lot for Luke, so he bought me a copy way, I mean, 10 years ago. It's sitting on my shelf behind me. We mentioned it. We spent some time in it uh, on a previous episode, but um, No More Mr. Nice Guy really does, that was the original book, really does address from a psychological perspective, I think he was like a Freudian, um, a lot of the issues that men today have of being maladjusted in this world. And we talked about it with the kind of hashtag me too stuff and some of the sexism stuff where men react men in college and young adult lives. They're, they're like reacting very poorly to rejection. They have a lack of self-confidence. You know, women talk about like a guy will buy you a drink and then think that they own you because they did that. And he's like, no, I don't want to have a conversation with you. It's like, bitch, I bought you a drink. And because no one, like, that's not, it's just awful. And people are just trying to take advantage of each other. So No More Mr. Nice Guy for you was a watershed moment. You can talk about it when I'm done kind of doing this stupid intro. But (laughs) because it was so much about, like, hey, these are the things you're doing to sabotage your own life and your own self. And start with confidence and lose a little weight and drink more water. It's, like, painfully self-evident stuff that when you string it together, in the form of a book with advice, you're like, holy crap, why am I not doing this? And then I started reading 12 Rules for Life. Now, Jordan B. Peterson is a controversial figure, especially because he's very, very, very anti-trans pronoun language. He thinks that the Canadian government, he's in Canada, he's at the University of Toronto, is way out of line making it a hate crime to refer to a man who's had transition surgery, to refer to her him as a her, and to do vice versa. And he's like... And he's been on all these shows. He's got all this fame. But his fame actually came well before that because he started doing, um, applying basically Jungian psychology to the Bible as biblical interpretation in a positive way. So you have all these atheists who are attacking Genesis. And he's like, you guys are idiots. You have no idea the power in these ancient words because you are expecting to read like a David McCullough novel or, or mm-hmm. you're expecting to read like 20th century or 21st century science. And he's like, you're idiots because you're missing the psychology behind it. So he just made a bunch of YouTube videos of three-hour lectures talking about the Bible. And that's the cool thing about this new media, podcasts, YouTube, all this stuff, is because you can do something like that. No, NBC would not fund this. You know, oh, like, no, no. no. Uh, it's going to be me on a stage and I'm going to talk for three hours about the opening chapter of the book of Genesis. Like, yeah, I wish you wouldn't. Um, so then he, <laughs> or he rented out a hall. It was packed and he recorded the lectures and he just talked the whole time and you can get him on YouTube. He's got tons of followers and all this stuff. So this book comes from a lot of this stuff. It's really interesting. He's a weird guy. He's an interesting guy. Um, his stories are, are crazy that he mentions in the book, but I just want to throw out a couple of the things 
that he says in this book that I really, 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 really liked. Um, so the 12 rules, here's a couple of the rules. Stand up straight with stand up straight with your shoulders straight or your shoulders back. Like when you join the United States military, mm-hmm. doesn't, doesn't matter which branch, the first thing they teach you is how to stand. And yeah. I, could, I connected that. There's a TED Talk on power poses. And I used to think that was the dumbest crap ever, especially since I'm Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Um, Amy, <laughs> Amy, the nerdy one, uh, she's like, I'm going to go home and practice my power poses. <laughs> like, that's like a joke. Mm-hmm. And, and then yet they talk about all of this stuff. And he talks about lobsters and how we are, like, they have dopamine and serotonin levels in the nervous system. Lobsters have been around before dinosaurs in one form or another. And we share a lot of the nervous system with lobsters. And he talks about how they're a hierarchical society, you know, like all of this stuff. And he ties a lot of this, like, when you feel defeated or depressed or you don't have confidence, you droop, right? You look down. You don't make eye contact. Your shoulders go inward as well as down. And he said, and you're signaling to other people that you're defeated, and I like my son Noah. When he 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 walks around normally, shoulders back, head up, you know, doing all that stuff, playing. But when Thomas hits him, one of my, his older sisters belittle him, right? Or when I tell him no, he immediately head down, shoulders down, all this stuff. He assumes the posture, and and it's fascinating how doing stuff like that is a, it's a signal to people. And the funny thing is, it's a signal to ourselves. Like I, yeah. I do, I do belong here. Like I, I know I have screwed up my whole life. I've been addicted to drugs or porn or, you know, uh, I, I don't have any success with, with women or with men or whatever, but being able to stand up and put your chin up, put your shoulders back is, is, is the starting process for a lot of people to recover that confidence that they may never have had. Because they had a shitty dad who humiliated them. Maybe they were on the sensitive side and their dad demanded them to be a football player like them and they never got along. You know, there's all of these things that kind of go into it. But, um, yeah, that, that, was, that one stood out to me. It's the very first one. It stood out to me a lot. And the other one was he talked about medicine. Have you ever had, like, pres- do you have prescription medicine, Luke? Uh, I mean, I've, I, I, not the one, anything that I have to take every day, but I do. I mean, like I had before, like obviously when I had my stroke and stuff and other things like that. Right. Did you take it every single time you were supposed to by the doctor when the doctor recommended it? Pretty much, yeah. Especially yeah. with the stroke. I was uber serious about it. Right. Because you could die. Yeah. 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 Wait, wait, wait. So. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> so when I had my strep throat, I did the same, right? Like every so often I would forget. And so I ended up setting timers on my phone. I tracked it on my phone because I wanted to get rid of this. But the statistics are terrifying. It's like one third of the people won't even get the prescription. Oh, and of wow. The, and of the two thirds that get it, half of them or more will not take it either until the full doses is done. You know, you, you run the full course or mm-hmm. they, they will just keep skipping and forgetting. And now really? I forgot. I forgot because I was like, wait, did I take that last night or did I take it tonight? Oh, what did I do? You know, so that's why I had to start writing stuff down and setting alarms on my phone. Mm-hmm. And there was maybe twice where I missed, but I always did the dose. Like I would be like, oh, crap, I forgot this morning. So I would drive home for lunch and pop the pill and do all this stuff. But here's the funny thing. When your dog is sick, the percentage of people who don't give 
medicine to their dog, it's like almost non-existent. People are better giving medicine to their animals and to their children than they are to themselves. And so his principle number two is treat yourself like someone you are responsible for helping. And Which, I thought that yeah. was profound. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Whole, yeah. Ah. Yeah. It is. His whole thing is about bringing order out of chaos, which is what happens in the book of Genesis. And one of the things that I love about him is I think, um, well, it's very easy because um, we have this rift within our culture between grace and nature. It's easy to isolate the two. And so I think one thing that tends to happen is when we look at the book of Genesis, if you're a practicing Catholic, it's very easy to do it just through the lens of salvation history and not view it as what, you know, our and what our and what our ancestors have to say about how to live a life. Because mm. you write it off as being, oh, it's archaic or oh, it's violent, or this is just a story that's really about the, you know, the coming of Christ. But there are some some profound values about like like just like human psychology. And one of the things that he really, you know, uh, gets to is, like, how to bring, like, like, I mean, he really talks about how, like, I mean, it, 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 it's, um, it really ties into a lot of uh, John Paul II stuff about how, uh, about how, like, love being creative and we're supposed to be, and we're supposed to really, you know, we are co-creators with God or we are co-partake, this could be the wrong word, but, like, we partake in creation like we can create things we can bring order out of chaos which is what god yeah. does in the book in the book of genesis and i think what he's done that i that's really helped me out is just kind of unpack why the, i mean it's honestly totally changed my view on the old testament that i mean not I'm totally changed but it's really helped me get a much I, I i have a greater appreciation for the whole thing than i did before yeah, and I like, so one of his things is order and chaos is is like the kind of principles that are brought throughout the yin and yang of the whole deal. And he says, like, order is masculine, chaos is feminine. And he talks about you never want too much chaos and you never want too much order. When you have pure order and you annihilate the feminine and you annihilate chaos, you annihilate freedom, right? So it's like the empire. Mm-hmm. So it, it's, it's kind of cool that in this story of, uh, and actually Bishop Barron is talking about this book in, in two episodes um, for his show, but he, and Bishop Barron keeps referencing Star Wars because um, the main guy that George Lucas was inspired by, uh, who is it, Joseph Campbell? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and the yep. whole hero's journey and all that. Well, he was a, a Jungian and Jordan B. Peterson pulls a lot from Jungian archetypes and all this stuff in terms of psycho, um, psychology and whatnot. But the interesting thing is he talks about or how funny it is that George Lucas has a woman as the head of the rebellion, right? So Mon Mothma, mm-hmm. and she represents, like, freedom and, and, and peace, whereas, the, you know, it's all men in, in the order, and they represent, or not the order, the empire, and they represent, right, supreme absolute order. And it is cool when you see that, right? Like, if you have too much order in your life, life becomes unbearable. If you have too much chaos in your life, you're, you're not even alive. Like, everything is nuts. And so you need to still balance the two, and you find that in so many different aspects. And I think of this in terms of, like, in terms of in, in, in church circles, you have, uh, there's this Protestant guy named, um, 
uh, Timothy Keller out at Redeemer Presbyterian in Manhattan. And in his book, he talks about contrasting legalism with antinomianism or anti-law. And he says, you find these in Christian churches where you have someone who's hyper-legalistic, and then you'll have people who are hyper-freedom, anti-legalistic. You find it in the New Testament, St. Paul, like, hey, just because everything is lawful for you doesn't mean everything is beneficial for you, right? And you have this juxtaposition. And then I think of it like applying it in our Catholic circles. You have some people whose understanding of Catholicism is very medieval in terms of the order, the institutional church. They only understand church as institutional church. Whereas the evangelists, people trying to go out into the world and give birth to new churches, they hate the institutional church. They struggle with it. It's an obstacle to them. They want to proclaim and they want to get, they want, you know, the prophetic, right? They want things to be a mess, right? And so when you're used to order as as the way you define church and they come with freedom as the way they define church, there's so much conflict between the two. You can see this between trads and charismatics, right? Or just like trads this, and Pope Francis, honestly. Well, I mean, or, you know, Pope John Paul lovers and Pope Benedict lovers and Pope Francis. You don't yeah, even have to be yeah. a trad. You know, it's because, you know, he keeps saying, I'm here to make a mess. And as people are like, well, you're doing a damn good job of it, bro. So, and there is this element that uh, immediately makes us uncomfortable if we are entirely used to this one side. Sherry Waddell ding, has this line where she says, um, we tend to see the world through the lens of our charisms. So if I'm an evangelist and I'm at a parish, parishes don't like evangelists because they're about order. They're about stability. And then when we did um, our freaking um, personality test, the DISC personality profile, it was so crazy because at that time when we did it, almost every single one of the people employed at the church in, in my department were C's and S's, which meant that they loved stability. And S means stable. And I'm like, <laughs> you find me over here as an I, and all I want to do is change stuff. And you can see why there would be conflict there. Like, I love new things. They love keeping good things stable. I'm fine with overthrowing good things as long as it means I get a new shiny thing, which is stupid. They are terrified of change because it might mean getting rid of the new thing. Even if it means getting rid of the potentially better thing, they'll oppose it no matter what, which is stupid. Mm -hmm. So it's not the annihilation of the feminine versus the masculine or the annihilation of the masculine versus the feminine. His whole thing is like this beautiful balance of the two. And I really, really like that. And so when he talked about the second part of treat yourself like someone you're responsible for helping, that was for me, he said, if you don't help yourself, then you can't help other people, right? If you can't put the mask on yourself, your kids are probably going to die because you're going to die if you don't get that oxygen mask on in the airplane, right? You need to be at some level of stability before you go out and help other people. Yeah. No, it's... That's, it's, been, uh, that's been powerful for me. Yeah, I love this stuff. I really do. I'm, I, uh, I don't... I get a little bit annoyed with a lot of the backlash towards them. And I, I mean, there's some stuff yeah. that maybe I don't really agree with, but I'm like, this means yeah. throughout the whole freaking thing. Um, right i uh sorry i'm like this cold's just getting worse so now i'm like yeah i got nothing <laughs> as as we're listening to you you are deteriorating <laughs> no, seriously like i could my nose is getting crazy um yeah i i um i i have not read that book i bought it for aaron for valentine's day but i'm was gonna read it after her so and i i think it's very interesting how you tied it into the no more mr nice guy book because that's kind of the, one of the whole points is just like hey like you can make your life better 
Yeah. You know, and I, I think it's just for a lot of dudes and just for a, a lot of us here, we've had so many of our needs taken. Like we just, we haven't had to really do a lot to take care of ourselves. So I have to sneeze again. Ugh. Well, I mean, when you look at the book wild at heart, the whole juxtaposition is the frontier versus or the wilderness versus civilization. And the notion was we all want and need civilization, but there's something about a man's heart that civilization doesn't fully fulfill. And when you look at it from an evolutionary perspective, right, we weren't made for cities, men and women, right? Cities is a new thing. That's why we have a fight or flight response or a freeze response when our boss sends us an angry email because it's like the, your body thinks you're fighting a bear, but it's just an angry email from your boss. Mm-hmm. But we don't know, biochemically, we don't know how to deal with that. And so the whole thing of Wild at Heart, and, and there's aspects of Wild at Heart that were deeply meaningful for me and stuff that I could take or leave. But one of the deeply meaningful things for me was this notion of, like, it's okay to love danger, the unknown. You know, it's okay to do that. And you were there for it. Uh, you know, when I was in love with a particular person who rejected me, um, not my not my wife, I'm not talking about getting engaged, but there's a girl that I really, 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 really cared about at Franciscan. And I, after reading that book, I realized, like, I had to tell her how I felt about her, even if she shot me down. And when she shot me down, it was the first time in a long time I felt like a man because I could say, I have no regrets. And I could walk mm-hmm. out with my head held high. And I remember walking home from her place in the projects to, uh, you know, about, what what is it, like half a mile to the Colby Claire dorms. Yeah, if, I remember uh, walking, I remember walking that thinking like, like my head was held high and I was just mm-hmm. rejected and it hurt, but it was the hurt of a man who can say, I have no regrets. I didn't hide from the pain. And that was, I mean, if you have a whole bunch of men and the same is true for women, if you have a whole bunch of men who have been hiding from pain and life, a lot of, a large part of life is suffering. If you've been hiding from pain, you don't know how to deal with it. Of course, these boys in college are lashing out at the women, and these young adults are lashing out at, you know, young adult women who, you know, they pursue them, and the women are like, no. Like, I, I, I think it's so funny how women reject men because they act like little boys. They don't have strength or courage. And then the men blame the women for that, like our one reoccurring friend on Facebook who, oh, my gosh, yeah, Ugh. constantly attacks women for not lowering their standards to his level. Yeah, I'm trying to like lose like lose about eighty pounds, dude. Um, uh, that's really harsh. Oh boy. Um, <laughs> uh, what else was I gonna say? Do you think you can become too dependent on God? No, absolutely not. I think you can become weird, <laughs> like you in like uh, you, you're kind of referencing like maybe maybe in the background our confidence debate. Well, where it's like. Not have only confidence in God, not in yourself. And you're like, no, you need to have confidence in yourself. And I'm like, no, you don't. You need to have confidence in God. But I mean, I think, um, can you use God like a crutch? Or what do you mean? Specifically? Yeah, like, okay, so is it possible to go like, well, I don't, I'm just going to pray that God brings me a spouse. I'm, I'm not going to really try to like work out. I'm not going to have an, I'm, I'm not going to be an, I'm not going to give any thought to, well, am I even an attractive person? So I'm like, yeah. if, if you don't take care of yourself for your basic need, like, this is one of the things that I really deal with. I have, I have like a problem when people say God's going to take care of um God's going to take care of your needs. I'm like, well, yes and no. I mean, on one sense, like yeah, like like God's going to give me everything that I need in order to like be alive and stuff. But like also, I'm the one who has to pay my bills. God's not going to do that for me. 
I'm the one that's got to <laughs> buy my clothes. I'm the one that's got to get, you know, like, I mean, if I want, if I yeah. want to be yeah. like lawyer, God's not going to all of a sudden just like, be like, and now you know law. Like, I got to go to law, law school. I've got to apply. I've got to study. It's all on me. Why is it that we, everyone is agreeing with you right now? And yet when it comes to things like spouses or, or just dating someone or, you know, friendships, we think that God is just going to hand deliver people. Or your own happiness. Yeah. Yeah. And so, like, what role in that does God have is what I'm wondering. Mm, mm. Well, I mean, look at the garden. Okay, let's, let's keep it in Genesis, right? God told Adam to work the garden. Work was not a punishment of the fall. The punishment of the fall was toilsome labor. But work, to till the garden and to keep it, to guard it, right? That's the command to Adam. And that's, that's powerful because that means if you want to eat, you grow your food. Till the garden. And it's a garden. It's not a forest. Like Adam and Eve were not placed. This is a really interesting thing. It was a garden in the midst of a wilderness, right? So the land is Eden. The garden, probably on a mountain, was, is a cultivated place within Eden. Right? That's why it's called the Garden of Eden, right? So you have this notion of God placing Adam and Eve in a culture, in, 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 a, in a cultured place, in a place that's, that is meant to be a part of man's influence on the world. And you see this in Rerum Navarum by Pope Leo XIII, where he talks about the dignity of work. And he's like, look at Adam. From the very beginning, man had to work. So we think of like God supplying all your needs, but that and, and this, I guess, is kind of Jordan B. Peterson's thing is that's almost infantile. Or it is infantile if you expect God to be your milkmaid. Mm. And that is the fear. God is your father, and God wants you to grow up. St. Paul says this. The author of the letter of Hebrews says this, right? Here's milk. <laughs> I avoided that debate. Um, here's milk. <laughs> I got an argument with an elderly gentleman at a Bible study. I would say, the author of the letter of Hebrews, and he would go, Paul. I was like, well, it's inconclusive. But the author of the letter of Hebrews, Paul. (laughs) I was like, wow, you are so certain. Um, But this notion of like milk, solid food, right? You have to grow up, be children, be adults in your thinking, but be babes in evil. Like there is this notion of when I was a child, I thought like a child, acted like a child, behaved like a child, thought like a child. But when I became a man, I put aside childish things. The the element of of adulthood is taking extreme ownership of your life. And if you say to God, okay, God, it's all on you, feed me, clothe me, like that that is such a backwards way of thinking because it there there's an infantil an infantilization of Christianity. So he says, you know, like Trust like a child, but don't be a child. It's a, Jesus doesn't want, he wants childlike trust. He doesn't want childishness. And I think that's the point where God is trying to raise sons and daughters who become kings and queens. He's not trying to raise Ooh. infants that stay you know, prepubescent, right? Mm-hmm. I like there's, that. O- there's always an element of work. Baby got to work, 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 work. And yeah, I think no. that's important. No, I, I did too. I think it's really like, I hate to use that guy as an example, but like if you're not taking, why would anyone be attracted to a person who's not taking care of themselves? Right. Like why, why would anyone be attracted to a dude who's, you know, like 80 pounds overweight, doesn't have a job or like doesn't have a real job, you know, like just kind of isn't trying to go anywhere with his life and isn't trying to, uh, 
you know, doesn't save any of the money that he earns, isn't paying off debt, isn't doing, you know, blah, 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 blah. Like, that's not, a, that's not attractive. Sorry, my nose is killing me. That's why I'm just, I'm letting you talk. The other, the other book that I read is called The Power of Habit. I really liked it. Really liked it. And I read it to prepare for a talk that I was giving. Bless. Oh, Luke. Oh, poor crap. Luke. I thought I turned it down. <laughs> poor, poor Luke. Um, I'm real sorry. I really thought the, I turned it down. Luke, it's okay. We're recording two different tracks. I will just mute it and move on. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Sorry. But the other, the other book that I just finished, uh, I read it on triple speed for the second time in order to prepare for the talk, is The Power of Habit, where he talks about looking at... So you take your habits, everything that you do and I do, your brain wants you to have habits for a lot of your behavior. That's why it's so easy to slip into habits. Like when you drive to work and then you're driving on a weekday and like I, uh, when I come home with my kids, I almost always drive past my friend's house where I'm taking his daughter because I just default go home, right? That's a habit. And the reason why your brain does that is it's conserving energy. And so when your habits take over, your hippocampus part of your brain is the like the habit area. I thought, I thought this was so fascinating that they've done all these studies with mice and with uh, adult humans and all this stuff that when we have habitual behaviors, our brain activity dramatically decreases. And so there's a cue, a routine, that's the habit, and then the reward that you expect to get. That, and that's what forms habits, the basis of all our habits. And our brains literally become hardwired for that. So every time there's a cue, there's a routine, and you expect to get the reward, right? And mm-hmm. then so he goes through and he talks about all this stuff. So he says, so if you can have self-knowledge about the cues that set you off on this routine, because, you know, how many times have people talked about pornography, their porn addiction being, and this is me, it felt robotic. I felt like I couldn't stop it. It was automatic. Uh, I felt like I was just a spectator, you know. It was as if someone else was watching this stuff and, you know, like doing all this stuff. It becomes this thing because that's what habits do. Like when you, have you ever driven home and you're just like, oh, wow, I'm home already. Oh, wow, was I paying attention? You were, but also the whole route was just habitual in your mind. And so his whole thing is if you can adjust the routine, you can end and you always have that, your brain has that formation to that original habit, but you can write over it with something new. So alcoholics, like I think of a particular person in my life whom I love a lot, um, was a drug addict. He, the way he adjusted his routine was he had to take a different route to and from work because the cue was seeing that particular exit. The routine was taking that exit, driving to the house and purchasing drugs, and the reward was the high he got from the drugs. So if he avoided the cue and rewrote his routine, he wouldn't go down and respond that way. One thing that I think is very kind of awesome and also terrifying is actually how complex our, our habits can be, the amount of, the amount of um, different steps there are. Yeah. Like if you look at people yeah. who are addicted to porn, going, you know, there's like 12 steps that, that, that they might take. And like going to confession is one of those steps. Often it's like the last part, you know, yeah. kind of towards the end. And, we've, and we think that the habit is everything up until we commit the sin. And we don't view it as being this whole entire package. And, and yeah, the, he, the ritual of the whole deal, of yeah. even going to confession is part yep. of. Yep. The and like the resolve we feel afterwards or, you know, however, like it's just it's kind yeah. of terrifying. Yeah. And the, the point of the book is you're not a slave to your habits because you, you can have the knowledge to change them. 
Yeah, and you, totally. you, you are responding. And he actually pulls out some crazy cases at the end. A man who sleepwalking murdered his wife was found not guilty uh, because he habitually responded. There was a, like a bunch of punks in there. They're vacationing somewhere. A bunch of punks were around him, and they were legitimately scared that these people were going to break into their home. And he had a dream, and he's a, a, like a constant sleepwalker his whole life. He's injured himself, you know, all this stuff. He had a dream that someone was on top of his wife choking her. So he or was hurting her, and so he jumped on the guy and choked him to death, and he woke up and realized that he just killed his wife. Oh my gosh! Could you? Oh, right, all right. And this has happened multiple times. This is not a rare thing. But they were able. Psychologists were able to prove that he, because he was in a dream state, the hippocampus took over, and he habitually did what anyone a strong husband who loves his wife would do. He fought the attacker. And in the dream, the attacker was fighting back, but it was his wife begging for help, and he couldn't hear her, and so Could he you killed her. What was going through her head while that was happening? Yeah, Ugh. yeah. I mean, just pure. I mean, and this guy has to live with this for the rest of his life. And then the same country found a woman guilty who uh, who was trying to. No, it, it was the U.S. They were suing. She sued the casino, who knew she was an addict, and would do send her cues to get her to come and spend all of her money. Ugh. She she blew through. She had millions of dollars. She blew through all of that. She blew through her kids' college funds, blew through the house, kept returning over and over again. And she was saying, "I'm not responsible for this. You are. You knew how to play my habits." And here's the deal: they totally did. Like that's the thing is these people totally know habits, and that's why the whole book it's a business book. The power of habit. It, he talks about your personal life and in your work, but the whole point of that book, like he goes through and when he introduces the Q reward. And uh, key routine and reward is he talks about how a marketing guy is the one who discovered this in the 20s and 30s. And that's how they marketed Pepsodent. The cue was a film on your teeth. Americans weren't brushing their teeth at that time. So he got them to do the routine, which is to brush your teeth or to, av- and then it was like avoid the film. Once you wake up, go immediately and brush your teeth. And why, why you know, like all these other people, all these other toothpaste commercials had the same thing going on. Like they would say the same thing. But he understood the reward, and the reward was Pepsodent had a little bit of citric acid in it and a little bit of mint. And so people associated the tingling sensation, which was actually the citric acid irritating your mouth. That that little tingle with the mint flavor made people, that was the reward. It made them feel like, oh, now my teeth are clean. And so everyone in America, and he became a billionaire, (laughs) or Pepsodent became a billion-dollar company, got in the habit of doing that. And so what happens? Well, every toothpaste company started doing that. That's why you have 50 different types of toothpaste, and they all have some sort of minty, tingly thing. That's why soap, I mean, have you ever been in a restaurant where you get liquid soap and it doesn't foam or anything? I feel like it's so low rent. (laughs) I know. It's like, have some (laughs) self-respect. Come on. Come on. Treat me with some respect. The the notion, though, uh, I love this book so much was because it was like... At first, it was liquid soap. Look, we get to clean our hands with liquid soap. How great. How less messy it is than regular soap and less cumbersome and less more hygienic. You're not picking up a bar of soap that someone else used at the bar. Who, know, who knows where that thing's been? But then it was like, well, now we need soap that foams, even though the foam does nothing. It does nothing. But it's so smooth. We need to have that rich lather, right? Shampoo, right. the exact same way. It does nothing. But the lather itself makes you feel like it's clean. And that's the reward. And so now, now it's so funny. 
every soap that we have, it, it doesn't foam when you use it. It foams when you first <laughs> put it in your hand. It comes out as foam. And that's the whole idea is like, I feel like, oh, this is high class. I got foamy <laughs> before I'm doing anything. And there'll be sometimes with my kids, they'll just squirt it on their hands and they'll just like move it around and then they're done. And it's like, you didn't even rub your, like, you, you didn't rubby rubby. Right? 17 and seconds, so- kids. <laughs> Come on, you sick freaks. <laughs> no, it's, oh, I had such a good point that I made a joke and I lost it. <laughs> Take oh, that, no, no, Dan no. Am. Okay, here's, here's what it is. So, like, think about all this stuff. Think about what God can do with that. If grace builds upon all nature, if you, and if you're if you are trying to do what is, this is one of the things that Jordan that Jordan yeah. Pearson really does harp on is like don't like do what is right and good, not what is ex- expedient. Yeah, and it's, I want to say he kind of says that that like I, I, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna kind kind of like butcher this, but like when you do that, that basically is what grit is. Or something like that. And you're kind of talking about how, like, grit really honestly is just, like, you really just, you aren't going to stop because you're trying to do, you're only going to do what is good and right. And that means you're going to push through anything that, um that like, pushes back. And if that's what you're doing, like, if you are trying to take care of yourself, think of how we're going to be able to take care of others and think about what God can do with that. It's pretty cool. Yeah, pursue what is meaningful, not what is expedient. Yeah. There's, there's no way around it. That's why I have a book from Jocko Willink. Uh, former Navy SEAL. He has one called Extreme Ownership. And the new one that just came out is called Discipline Equals Freedom or Discipline is Freedom Equals Freedom. And it's not like any other book. Like it is, it's huge print, you know, a sentence or two on a page. I didn't like that. I didn't like how it was laid out. I didn't. Well, when I first got, I was like, what? But now this is how I do it is trying to change my life, trying to be a better person, trying to, you know, grace and nature. I pick up and I read one page and I write down my thought, my discipline thought for the day. Mm-hmm. I'm like, all right, how can I pursue meaning in this? Like when I, when I did not want to wake up at 530, I, he has this thing where he says, use, use your logic to do your job. And then when logic is so weak, like when I'm convincing myself, well, I need to sleep in because I went to bed so late editing, catching foxes. And now I just, I deserve to sleep. You know, I got to get eight hours because he said, then logic dies and you have to use emotion. And he said, but there comes a point when emotion runs out, and then you got to go back to logic. And so that's the, that's the art of pushing through boredom, pushing through, you know, running on empty because you realize that your body actually has about 40% reserve energy. Um, that's why marathoners, 99% of people who run marathons will complete them because they've learned the art of pushing through at mile 17 when they hit the wall mm-hmm. and realizing that mm-hmm. their body actually has about 40% of its energy left. It's almost like the, the uh, gas light comes on a little bit south of halfway, and you can keep pushing through. And most people are like, nah, I don't want to. And by most people, I mean me all the time. <laughs> right? But that's, that's, one of the, that's one of my problems is I don't, I don't treat someone like I'm – I don't treat myself like I'm someone I'm supposed to take care of. Right? I, I keep – it becomes an excuse for me to have a sad story. I wish I could lose weight. Right. I wish I could work mm-hmm. out more. Well, the reason why I haven't lost weight, haven't worked out more. There's a, there's a lot of reasons. There's emotional shit. There's all these baggages. But at the end of the day, my dad is not going to come over to my house and make me lose weight. My mom is not going to help me eat right. My wife is going to support me in all of this. She's part of that befriend people who want the best for you kind of stuff, which is rule number three. But I really love the fact that it's like, listen, OK, in the end, you're the only one that can do this. Yeah. 
And when you're talking about faith in God, um, there's a whole thing in the power of habit where he says, so the, the key, so you have the cue, the routine, and the reward. He said, but so one of the things that you have to know is it doesn't become a habit until the reward becomes a craving. And they hooked up monkeys, and they did this test where, you know, you, you do the cue routine, blah, blah, blah. He said, when the monkey's brain lit up when it got the reward, that's like happiness. He said, but it became addictive or a craving when when they got the cue, their brains would light up as if they had already received the thing, right? So you, yeah, so you have a monkey, you see a squiggly line on a screen, pushes a lever, and then gets the juice, loves the juice, does it over and over and over again. Pretty soon he sees the squiggly line on the screen before he even hits the lever, his brain lights up as if he's drinking the juice. You know what the scientist did? Deprived him of the juice. What do you think the monkey did? Get really angry with like Tarzan man. Started, like, yes. Stuff. Yeah. He got really angry or really depressed. Oh. <clears throat> right. And so, and then they freak out, scream, yell, bash things, or he would just sink into himself. And uh, that notion of craving, he said, how do you get out of that? And he said, Tony Dungy. Tony Dungy was a successful coach because he believed in the power of habits, but none of his players, whether on the, uh, the Buccaneers or the Colts, once they got to the playoffs under him, uh, once the stress was on, they gave up the habit. Like all the things he trained them over and over again, they gave up the habit until Tony, Tony Dungy's son committed suicide. Right? It was this terrible tragedy. Three mm-hmm. days before Christmas, he committed suicide. And it was a horrible thing. And everyone's like, holy crap. And all these pe- the, prof- the players spoke under the condition of anonymity in these interviews where they were like, don't tell him this, but like, I like, I don't want to be the guy, but he said, I played for my contract until his son died. Then I played for him and I played for the team. And over and over again, you hear these guys say, well, we just believe so much in Tony that like it was then we started playing as a team. And the guy, the author's like, you know, it sounds crass saying like, Hey, we're going to win some football games now that you're, you know, the son, this tragedy happened, but it was this thing. And he realizes the, the concept is belief. And that's why AA works seven out of the 12 steps are about God and faith and powerlessness. Uh, you need his help and all of these things. And it's so powerful because it's the belief that I can change that'll carry me over the craving. And if you don't have that, getting carried over the craving is the most difficult part. So religious people versus non-religious people who go through the 12 steps, religious people have less relapses because they believe not just in a God who believes you can change, but a God who died for you and rose for you so that you would change. And so that is how all of the stuff that I just said to you is how I gave my porn talk on Sunday night to the high school students. Like nice. you can change. This is possible. Nice. Man. So books, huh? Yeah. Seriously. We just did an episode on books. How about that? How about that? Uh, sorry, about Jesus. That? Not going to share you today. <laughs> so gospel. Hello, Don't need grace like- today. Yeah. yeah, don't need grace today. It's all nature. Nature. All right, I'm yeah. so sorry that I was sick and sniffling. I'm, I'm I can like feel, fine, I feel like I'm in a worse spot than I was when I started. Yeah, that's what I do to people. <laughs> it's called the Gormley paradox. <laughs> the more you listen, the more sick you get. Hey, speaking of paradox, very bummed to see that the Cloverfield paradox sucked. Oh, I, yeah, mm, it wasn't okay. very good that's at all. Nice. I got through about an hour, not about an hour, about maybe a half hour. So I was kind of like, yeah, all right. So funny. Hey, um, so there's something here that I need to talk about and then I need to go. Um, So Matt. Go on. Oh, man. (laughs) 
Oh, my poor, uh, my poor broken Luke. Um, so Matt Frad just wrote a new book. Yay. Yeah. And we're very excited about it. I'm going to pull it up on iBooks real quick. Man, he like puts out, he puts out a lot of books. He does. That guy. It's almost like it's his full-time job. He's a <laughs> hard-working Aussie. I'd like to imagine that at some point in time, Matt Fratt has hung out with Chris Hemsworth. Just because, you know, they're both from Australia. And I just assume everyone there knows each other. Does God exist a Socratic dialogue on the five ways of St. Thomas? He wrote this book with Robert Delfino. Robert Delfino. Now, Matt, ha- he reached out to me yesterday and he said, "Yeah, hey, man, I'm going to give you 10 free copies of the book to send to your listeners. Oh, that's awesome. Okay. Now, I like his book a lot. He asked me to read, like, the reviews of the book, but it's not on. <laughs> I left my copy of his book at my in my office because I was reading it. Um, so it's a Socratic dialogue. So it's people having a conversation. So Mafrad and Robert A. Delfino write this book. And the cool thing about it is uh, it, it's a conversation that goes back and forth over oh, the five ways of St. Thomas. So it's a dialogue that you're reading, kind of like Plato and whatnot. And Dr. Peter Crafe does a lot of those. Um, it's a great book. It's very accessible to young adults. I think it's very good to help form your cranium on how to do, um, how to think with the church kind of thing, you know? So what Matt has said was, since he just published this book, it's coming out. If we have, we got to set up a contest, Luke, and we want to get the top 10. He's going to give us 10 free copies to send out to our listeners. Ooh. Yeah. You're darn right, Ooh. So what do you think that contest should be? Should we go the iTunes route? Should we go, I don't know, something like sharing on Facebook? Should we do 10 new yeah. Patreon listeners? What do you think? Here's what we'll do for the next week. So from March 9th to March 16th, let's do a thing where we want you to post your, we want you to post a like, link to your favorite episode of Catching Foxes. And we'll put everyone who does that, we'll put your names into a hat. And we'll, and we'll draw out 10 names. So you go to catchingfoxes.fm. If you've never been to our webpage, you just get it from your podcatcher. Um, catchingfoxes.fm, and there'll be a number for that episode. You can search the previous episodes. Um, we have a blog that we put up there that uh, Luke's going to write one on advertising. What is it like to advertise with us? But I have one on our gear that we use, software that we use, um, why we go with fireside.fm. People that ask questions about how to get a podcast up and running, there's some stuff right there. Uh, for you to you know kind of ask and answer stuff so yeah so what we'll do is you link it to that to the web page part so where are they going to post it post it on facebook and twitter yeah yep okay so facebook and twitter and we'll go and we'll spend a week counting up and gathering all of these people you can send us a little note saying hey you know catching foxes here's my favorite should we do a hashtag luke i know i feel like we should all right how hashtag, about this oh sorry no go ahead well, I you, you had one on you Twitter did one, said, right? this Catching Foxes episode doesn't suck. <laughs> it's, a little cr- it's a little crude. Maybe we'll do something different. Well, or, well, or, come or, up with it right now, Luke, because I don't want to have to edit this shit out later. <laughs> uh, hashtag, I'll accept this. No, it's stupid. Uh, hashtag, okay, hashtag three out of five would catch these foxes. 
<laughs> How about hashtag three out of five? <laughs> Deal. Hashtag three out of five. <laughs> three, the number three out of five, all one word, <laughs> with a hashtag in front. Whether it's on Facebook or Twitter, that'll help us find it a lot hashtag easier. Three out of five. <laughs> <laughs> America's favorite three out of five <laughs> podcast. Oh, man. So, okay, that's great. That's great. So that's what we'll do, and we'll spend a week. You have from March 9th to uh, March 16th, and then we'll gather them all up, and then we'll announce the winners individually and then on the podcast. And then what we're going to do is just going to turn over your address to the um, the publisher, and the publisher is going to mail it out. Matt was like, maybe I could do, like, three autograph ones, and I was like, if you have to send the autograph ones to me and then I have to mail them out. <laughs> That's just sniff. That's Let's call a spade a spade here. Yeah. Crap, man. People haven't even gotten their stickers and they've been giving us $10 a month for a while now. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> Does God exist a Socratic dialogue on the five ways of St. Thomas? Matt Frad, Delfino, Delfino, Delfino. Matt Frad with Robert Delfino, Robert Delfino, St. Thomas. Hashtag three out of